Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Howlcast. In the upcoming conversation, Charles and I talked to Brant McDuff, who showed up on my radar about two years ago as he stepped in from New York to support bear hunting in California and made some really fascinating and uh, I'd say scholarly um, well-educated arguments in favor of maintaining the bear hunt here in California. Uh, since then, Charles and I have gotten to know Brant a little bit more, and we wanted to have him on the podcast because he brings a unique perspective. He's from New York, lives in the city. He is formerly, um, you could say he's been a casual anti-hunter, definitely a non-hunter, um, loved critters and thought that 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 meant that you know killing them is bad but has really come full circle around into the realm of conservation and the kind of the mechanisms that support conservation always include hunting um, or always should include hunting while you listen to the podcast please um, give charles and i a little of the past we were we were filled up with cold medicines <laughs> after sheep show and so there's a little bit of rambling, but but muscle through it, um, please. While you're listening, check out Brant's website, immortalanimals.com. Immortal animals because Brant is a uh, he's a taxidermist. He actually has done some teaching of taxidermy, and he's a historian in the realm of taxidermy. Also, you could check him out on Instagram at stuff in my apartment along the lines of the stuff that you would see in his apartment is uh, frequently dead animals. So stuff in my apartment at Instagram or immortalanimals.com. And uh, you'll learn a little bit about the book that he wrote, The Shotgun Conservationist, which I think is fascinating as well. Um, we talk a lot about we talk a lot about talking to non-hunters. We talk a lot about the the anti-hunting industry and and how they leverage um, words and language and people's emotions against us. And we talk a lot about how to how we can as a community do better to reach out and talk to the non-hunting public, not to recruit them to become hunters, but to recruit them to relate to us and support hunting as a critical mechanism and component of conservation so dive in listen in and we appreciate your support as always go to howlforwildlife.org to become a member or take action all right so and support hunting hey everybody welcome to howlcast this is mike costello i've got charles Thanks, everybody witwam uh from howl and we are sitting with brant mcduff author uh scholar writer former non-hunter conservationist uh his book that came out in the last year or so the shotgun conservationist we'll talk about that a little bit but mostly we're digging into and have been digging into thankfully it's recorded so we can splice and dice a little bit <laughs> I, I didn't um, know this was going to be a podcast oh okay well here we are let me know if you uh if you need anything excluded i have better i have better uh headphones with no your mic, sounds good that's better okay your sound is good you're uh you sound good you look good so this is fantastic um yeah so we're just, we're talking about you know communicating a lot of uh, talking a lot about communicating to the non-hunting community because i think all of us in the in the hunting space have realized that um 
no matter how much we are three the world, <laughs> you know, there's not going to be a majority of hunters out there uh, anytime soon. And so in order to, to have public favor towards legal regulated hunting and opportunity at a, at a large scale, we need, we need non-hunters to support what we do. Um, and for that support to be there, they need to understand what we do, not just the technical aspects, but the values and principles behind it. I think Brant's a great, um, has a great, some great points of view on that. So that's what we're digging into. I want to talk about like, from your perspective, what's changed in your world and your, your worldview of hunters and anti-hunters and non-hunters, uh, in the last mm -hmm. two years, since we first met over sure. the bear issue in California. Yeah. Um, cause a lot's, I think a lot has, things have evolved for me, they've crystallized a little bit, like become more clear what we need to do, but we'd love to get your take on that. Cause you were already kind of chewing on that stuff before even I think I came to it. Um, Charles, what else? Oh, and you've got SCI coming up, right? Yeah. Are either of you guys going to be at SCI? No. I wanted no. to make it to sheep. I was dead sheep before, but I, I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't make it out there this year. Yeah. Just curious about like what your what your agenda is at at when you go to an event like that what your what your agenda is whatnot <laughs> are we recording right now we are because oh. i because one time i i um one time i didn't record mm. yeah i'm sure that that has happened yeah, it's been it lost really for the win. Do I need to blur my background? Am I worried about like no, no. men tracking me down because no, no, my... no. Your background's lovely. Mine no. is is a is I, a is a train wreck. I do see you have that that white tail back there from 1923, and then yeah, exactly. another rack, and then like a French tickler on there. So yeah. that's yeah, yeah, it's a, pretty... yeah, exactly. It's a warthog tail French yeah. tickler. Yeah, exactly. That is and then awesome. those those little guys are all old uh, real seal skin um you know they would take uh, seal skin and they would make little steel souvenirs out of them in um, canada and alaska and i've got a bunch of collection of those little guys i've got a walrus usik back there i got all kinds of fun stuff really that's super rad <laughs> i love it yeah, yeah, <laughs> no i don't know like why studying the background like in ah. my background why is the golden gate bridge in my background i guess i i don't know how that popped up these um these guys this uh this wood carved bear with the salmon in its mouth is mm -hmm. from japan and i have a bunch of i have a bunch of collections of those they're all hand carved in hokkaido the island at the top you know they've got a bunch of brown bears and they eat off the salmon and it was in the 18 it was like the early eight uh, mid 1800s when um this guy who was kind of a big deal in Hokkaido, he went on this, like, I'm going to go on the grand European tour and he gets over to um, like Bavaria and he's in Austria and Germany and the black forest. And he, he sees all those beautiful black carving, uh, black forest carvings of the animals like roe deer and uh, bears and things like that. And he buys a couple of souvenirs and he gets back to Hokkaido and he's like, talking he's talking to everyone like i have just gone on this trip and here is what i have learned and brought back and he's got these wood carving bears and he's like we've got bears here why aren't we doing this shit we can't farm squat in the winter because they've got incredible snowfall and so he's like farmers 
learn to carve these bears in the off season and we'll sell them as souvenirs. And so the Japanese being Japanese are like, yeah, of course. Okay, we'll do that. And we'll master the techniques immediately and we'll be better than the black forest carvers immediately. And um, so there's just this wealth of these gorgeous hand carved wooden mm. bears that all specifically come from Hokkaido just because one guy was like, yeah, we can do this. That's kind of amazing how, yeah, like, I guess, culturally, that's basically what you were saying. Culturally, they're just like, yeah, we can do this. That's a great idea. Let's all do that now. And then they just do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the Scottish like to make whiskey? Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, so it's yeah. just this, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. That's yeah, funny. Yeah. Hmm. And we'll be well, really good at it. I want to. I know we're recording or whatever, and I don't know. Yeah. I've mentioned it to you before, Brant. Um, I think we mentioned it the other day, but definitely love to have you involved with Howl a little more um, to some extent. I know we talked about like you said it's you like being under the under the uh, radar or, or just not rep- Un- unaffiliated. Unaffiliated, yeah. I mean, it's kind of the same way we work in a lot of ways. Um, we just want to get more people involved, uh, whether it's Howl being announced or not. You know what I mean? But yeah you i just i just really appreciate your perspective and your in your brain and the different angle on things that you can bring and that's what i think would be important to to haul and and hunting as human which i don't know i'd just like to have you involved in one way or another yeah i would love that i mean honestly there's i had a friend help me with my website and there was a section like a a page uh, at the top that I wanted to have included that was just going to be called something like resources or more learning or something like that, where I could just have a place to compile all of these different um, articles, videos, whatever. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was too much work and we couldn't figure out exactly the, the, the way in which to display all those things or make them easily accessible for people. So I was like, you know what, it's not, it's not a big deal. We'll get to it when we get to it. But I, I feel like how the site you're working on would be a perfect uh, venue for that kind of content. I think it's important to have a space where it's like, oh, check out this one particular video that RMEF made about funding structures here and there. This is a really good one. Or, um, hey, did you read this article from the Atlantic? Um, or And just have a compilation of related topics that are coming from different sources. I think that even if people don't read all of them, I think having a space where those materials are collected, where you're basically saying, but you don't have to take my word for it. Here's something from the New Yorker. And just a place where all of that can be in one place as a resource where you can say, yeah, it's fine if you argue with me, but check out these other things. You know, this mm-hmm. isn't just us putting out our shit. Here's a broader look at mm-hmm. the issues and how other people are tackling them and what we're trying to pull from. Um, I think that's very important. So people see that it's not just you plugging your own shit for your own yeah. ends. I totally agree with that. hundred percent. And most of the branded stuff that people do anyway, is just a rewrite of something else that's out there. And they're like, this is ours now because <laughs> they just, yeah. they resummarized it and put their logo on it. Yeah. No need to, to uh, reinvent the wheel. Cause what we're doing overall is really big. Like we are seeking ultimately a sea change 
of thought in the United States of America um, and, and on, on how people view hunters, predator hunting, wildlife management, science-based wildlife management, um, and then the necessity for all of those things and, and et cetera, you know, but literally a sea change on how yeah. people think about this, this, this whole, I want to make the anti-hunting, I want to make them irrelevant. I mean, they're the people whose end goal is just like, yeah, you know, this is chip away, chip away, chip away. We want to get rid of everything and make everybody vegan or whatever. That that really is an agenda. Like that's got to become irrelevant. It's that's crazy to me. And the present yeah. and the preservationist ideology, yeah, is a real like the whole like 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 how they're seeping into thirty by thirty and rewilding. To me, well, rewilding, great, like cool. That means I get to go out and hunt because because back in the day when it was wild North America, like humans were part of the landscape and they hunted sustainably. Mm -hmm. Like they hunted, it was a, they hunted all animal, all, all critters were, were potential, you know, prey for humans. Um, but it was, it was a sustainable ecosystem. So if you're going to rewild it. And it's a hard thing to explain. I have never, I've never had a negative experience explaining the conservation economics of hunting to people. Mm -hmm. I think that is partly that is the venues that I am speaking in and the trust that is given to me in those spaces. Um, but people generally, they listen and they mm -hmm. are curious. Mm -hmm. And I generally get incredibly positive responses mm -hmm. so it is that it is that largest middle group of people who were vying for the hearts and minds of uh we already have the hunters and then we'll you'll never convince the the most vehement anti-hunters but it is all those people in the middle we're working for and I mean, the majority of them don't, they couldn't give less of a shit. They have bigger things down their plate. What are you, what but, are you saying that's different there than, than maybe what we hear all the time? Um, I like what I, I worry that when we say the North American conservation model works, people like, <laughs> I don't know what that is. Yeah, and they don't it, like, it, it's not, and it's also not intuitive what it is. I like to say modern, modern hunting is a system of, ecologically and economically sustainable wildlife management that uses hunting at the core like like it's ecologically and economically sustainable yeah like the, we so what do you say that yeah. works in those venues with those audiences is it different well, than what we're here what we hear so often not not really the difference is because i am given that platform and a group of people's attention as a scholar a or time. as a as a as a as a former non-hunter what is it about your platform that that's that's working for you it's not even the platform itself that's that's okay. part of it but it is it is just that i am given the time and that's the biggest problem is Got it. when you see on a social media post or 
um, you know, a, whatever, a, a one thing, a one sentence that can be written mm -hmm. on a ballot or whatever, mm -hmm. that image is so quick to digest someone with a dead bear. Right. So quick to digest a bunch of dogs barking up a tree at a frightened mountain lion. That yeah. image is instant. And now it's up to you to take how much time is it going to take to be like, well, okay. So it's really difficult to hunt mountain lions without dogs. And if you, you know, right. uh, if you look at the, like it takes so much education to talk about that image. Um, the, even if it's just like, here's me happy with my dead deer. Mm -hmm. You just see some psychopath who is psyched that they just killed an animal. Because they don't know the backstory, always, they don't know, they don't know why, the why they're psyched. It's not it's not psyched that they killed the animal. It's psyched that they've exactly like blood, sweat, like investment, time, resources, meat at the other end of this at the other end of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we so how do we break down combating that? Yeah. And so that's, the, that's the person, the recipient of that image, the recipient of the image is processing that image with what they already know, what they've heard, what they think, what they know, what they think they know. So really, the key is how do we get ahead of that? How do we get the right inputs into the non-hunter's psyche so that when they see that image, they can be like, man, that must have been hard. Like, and, and I know they paid into the program, and so it works. Like, good, good on you. Like, congrats. Like, how do we do that? Because I, I think we're swimming upstream against 20 years of, of, of language and messaging that is that adds friction to what we're trying to achieve. So how do how do we do it? Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's not easy because of that. Because they have simple images on their sides that you don't have to explain to win their their side but, over. But they have. It, but but it's hard. the preconceived. It's the it's the predefined inputs that def, that that program how that image will be processed. Yeah. Yes. So how do we get ahead of that? So if you can have more, like I live in New York City and I'm, I'm a member of Trout Unlimited, BHA, like all the, all the groups, mm -hmm. um, HOC, and we have little pint nights and uh, we have a, like a weird, broad, you know, like New York City spectrum of people who show up to these things. Yeah. And it's like maybe they've seen a meat eater episode on Netflix, or um, maybe they've just seen through like a, a chef on Instagram or something. There's something about wild sourcing, and someone, you know, somewhere, some firing has happened like, oh, sourcing wild mushrooms or wild game. The idea of wild game is really cool. Well, what? How do you get that wild game? Oh, right. And so there is this sort of, you have to work backwards that is very effective, but showing up in those non-confrontational third spaces. And they're choosing to go. So they, they're, they've, they're demonstrating that they have an open mind for some of, they're at least open to some of it. And they're and they're and they're they're electing to spend that thirty to ninety minutes 
maybe expose themselves to things that are that's new or yeah. or and different than what they what they think. I think that the part of R3 that's problematic is that it is just focused on recruiting hunters and no one cares if we recruit more hunters. Everyone wants to see fewer people in the woods, but it's that fourth R, which is um, relevance, which is basically, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's PR. I think of it. It's the R Public relations, PR. Rela yeah, exactly. relationality, re relationships. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, I like that. It's, yeah. It's sort of having that openness that like, I'm, I'm not trying to convince you to be a hunter. I don't give a shit if you become a hunter, but here's what you should know about it and what's really interesting. And if you like being outside, you like animals, like I convinced my friends to take their kids hunting without a gun. I was like, well, here's what you need to do. You yeah. need to go ass early in the morning and secrete yourselves in the, no, you're not going to see any animals if you're just walking down a trail in the middle of the day. Yeah. You want to see some animals. I'll show you how to see some animals. Relate and, relatability. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's possible, but you do, you know, if you look at, you look at how, or you look at blood origins or you look at um, SCI, you look at like the biggest names in the game, there's going to be a particular type of hunty hunter, scruffy white bro that everyone's going to be like, yeah, I know what that guy's about. And it's like, ah, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but either way they don't rep represent everybody and you know what happens when you assume or you know what happens when you start to stereotype i love i live in new york city i, I am a transgender dude and i have no problem shoving that right in people's faces saying yeah you might look at me and think one thing from what i'm saying but what if i told you this would that flip the script for you um you know my buddy brandon he's black and he's a doctor whoa yeah. um my friend in Virginia is a woman and she's a neuroscientist and she occasionally casually hunts for deer and Turkey. Like yeah. it's, you gotta have, uh, you know, Sue um, who has been in the, um, is mm -hmm. in the forum. Oh yeah. She's this like adorable, like uh, older woman who yeah. is just like, well, I didn't like hunting. And I thought, you know, and she just has these cutesy, like, but she's still an on hunter. Using you know, exactly, yeah. But yeah, she's yeah. like what? She's like lived in the. She's lived in the African bush. She's 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 been there. She's witnessed all sides of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just going to be up to uh, when I'm at SCI. I have meetings with some of the Colorado, um, some of the Colorado folks. Mark uh, Trex, who's running the the yeah. um, sort of political campaign. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, Colorado. Uh, yeah, I haven't met with him before, but um, yeah, that's going to be, uh, yeah. And who's the guy, uh, Dan, um, Gates. Dan Gates, yeah. you know, it's like Dan Gates, he's not wrong. He's not wrong about anything, but he is exactly the type of character people are going to tune out of immediately. Long beard, country yeah. guy. He knows he's not, he knows he's not the, the poster poster boy for the the non-hunter community he um he'll sit down and talk with anybody like he'll 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 break bread and and build a relationship with anybody well he seems like a teddy bear and um and it, it really throws people off it throws hunters off there's there's hunters that think oh you know dan's he's a sellout whatever because he took a picture with that political person or whatever it's like no he just he knows that to to, to get things done 
we have to have relationships and we have to be able to communicate about the issues in every venue. Um, and I think that's one of his superpowers is he, he, while he's as like, he, he comes off as the grizzly old trapper from the mountains of Colorado. Well, he is right. <laughs> but he also, but he also can sit down and, and just, and have human communications with anybody. And, and it, it's, it, it's what we all need to be, you know, aspire to be better at. Um, yeah. If you can find a way to show, you mentioned how you mentioned how in, in yeah. with the SCI. And I think the one thing I want to point out is, Charles and I with Howell and, and John, we, we know that the, that I think we know and we aspire to, um, especially make the honey, hunting is human side of Howell to be very much about the diversity of thought and people involved in the hunting space, because it is, it has become crystal clear that to me, we don't hunt because of the North American model. We don't hunt because it's wildlife conservation. We don't hunt because we hunt because we're human. We hunt because people, humans are going to hunt. People are going to go out in the woods. They're going to kill animals. Like it's, it's going to be, it's, it's kind of like prohibition worked with alcohol. Like it's still happening, <laughs> you know? And so, and I think the founders of, what's now the North American model knew that, that humans are going to do this. And so we need to harness that energy in a way that's positive, that gets us data, that gets us funding, that gets us a, a sustainable ecosystem. Um, and so I think the biggest thing about the hunting is human side is it's going to be, it's totally about communicating with non hunters in a relatable, the fourth R in a relatable fashion. Um, it's not recruiting them. It's just to, uh, so yeah. that they like they see like yeah I don't do that but but they, but it works like that system works. Yeah, that's it. I I, I think that's yeah I think that's very important. Um, I think it is going to be a tougher sales pitch because at the end of the day, people are always going to care more about the animals than they're going to care about the people. Problem is, it does require active participation from the hunting community and mm -hmm. you know as as we all talk about it's like oh well hunters kind of keep to themselves and they don't want to be a part of all this and they and it's like ugh, now we have been turned into activists and that's new for a lot of people which is why i think how is so important just yeah. making it easy for people to do that so you've written your book in terms of the dynamic between hunters the non-hunting public, the, that broad middle that we that we want to love and have have love back from, and then also the anti-hunting realm. Like, what do you what do you see? What's the direction that things are going um, in in that space? It is a little tricky to look at it totally objectively because so much of that time I was working on the book, so I wasn't paying as in a way, I was paying a lot of attention to what was going on in the hunting space. And mm -hmm. at the other part, it was like, well, this is just the story I have to tell at this point and just working, just actually doing the work of writing the book. Mm -hmm. And then after the book came out, just still staying involved while I'm also trying to plug the book and 
feeling like I am seeing more active uh, anti-hunting work pop up in mm-hmm. places, but I can't really tell if that is real or if that is me just seeing more because I'm involved in a different way than I was before. Um, I was uh, an an anti-hunter in a very inactive way growing up, just as a kid who didn't like hunting because I liked animals, so why would you want to shoot an animal? Mm-hmm. So that was me as a kid, but then keeping animals in my life and wanting to move from a from just being interested in animals to interested in how do we keep animals around? Oh, they need habitat. Okay. What's the, how, how do, you know, and just moving on from that sort of interest in animals as a kid to the work I do today and being more involved with hunting and hunters, how, what I've seen change it does seem like there is a more active anti-hunting movement, but that is difficult for me to see based on how my involvement has changed over the years. I think there is too. And I actually think it's, I think it's in response to more public expression Mm. of hunting. I feel like, I feel like the the that the anti-hunting movement and industry is tooling up in response to you know Joe Rogan like sharing that he hunts for elk and he's a, he's a fan of elk meat now and and wild wild game. I think I I've, I've said this um a few times I'll continue to say it. I think that the the anti-hunting industry would like to see hunters wither away and go back into a a dark closet and just not not be out in the public realm because if we are gaining general public acceptance uh that that goes against what they that's it goes against their agenda so they have to so then they have to like they have to push more into the public space as well yeah and that's certainly like a media media issue social media um if joe rogan is talking about it if the show Meat Eater is on Netflix versus the Outdoor Channel or something like that. Right. Um, when they come out of those bubble type spaces, um, certainly you know becoming more visible to people outside of the bubble, which I think is still kind of small, um, but there's definitely more crossover c- coming outside of of yeah. the, the hunting bubble. Yeah. If if hunting is uh, in hunting and hunting acceptance, um, including predator hunting and all forms of you know all forms of trapping, if if we rely on public acceptance, um, let's just call it it's its own social movement. Can it can it survive and win by being hidden away, or or is it is there an example of a social movement that survived by being hidden? Like that prospered and grew by being hidden away, or does it does it need that light of Joe Rogan, and 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 us with our you know our cave drawings that we put up on Instagram and and whatnot to share stories of what we do with our individual communities. 
it is kind of an unfortunate um, cycle that is that sort of perpetuates itself because it was kind of just doing fine by itself because wildlife management was the uh, was relegated to the realm of wildlife scientists. It was and, doing fine um, until when? Like, can you put a doing... year on that? Mm -hmm. Because well, I think we were losing, I think we've, I think over, you know, hound hunting has been stripped away in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Spring bear has been stripped away a lot of places. Mountain lion hunting went away in California. Like I, I, I wonder though, like if that, if the incremental chipping away was happening more quietly because we were also more quiet. Yes. I think that it, absolutely. Uh, yes, that's all true. I think what I was thinking about was more, there will always be that, that kind of work was always happening behind the scenes, but it mm -hmm. wasn't a, we weren't seeing like ballot box type situations and just generally asking the public, Hey, what do you think we should do with wildlife management? Yeah. And that is, that's something uh, that I think is different than uh, mountain lions or uh, those other those other issues that had been um, tackled sporadically here and there, but the difference now between like, let's just bring it to the people because people don't know squat about this and it's a really yeah. easy sell. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, tell, tell us a little bit about your book. Is, is it, is a hunter, is, is it a book that hunters will enjoy and relate to? Like who's, who's the audience and what, what inspired you to, to write it? And what kind of feedback have you had? I wrote a book specifically for people who don't want to pick it up. I don't. <laughs> it's a terrible marketing <laughs> approach. <laughs> and I wish someone had told me. Right. Um, yeah, it is. It's called the shotgun conservationist. Why environmentalists should love hunting. I love it. And it is sort of a free economics look at, conservation structures and how hunting relates to them. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at the U S and I'm looking at particular international stories. And then I'm also weaving in my personal story to try and make it a little bit more relatable versus just a one Oh one style textbook. Mm -hmm. So it's got a little bit of a few different things, which I was kind of aiming for. I hope it was successful rather than seeming disjointed or anything like that. But it is part my personal story of growing up and being really against hunting and then staying connected to wildlife and wildlife matters as I grew up mm -hmm. and um, sort of connecting that story to that, uh, what I learned as I stayed connected to conservation issues growing up and eventually becoming a hunter and why I did. And unfortunately, I think there is, it is an easier selling point for people when they think about hunting to hear it from the voice of someone who was not born into a hunting family. Sure. Um, and so I try to use that 
to my advantage, say, here, look, I thought the exact same thing you did, but you haven't really needed to or had to change your mind over time. It's very easy to just keep that same opinion about hunting or trapping Mm -hmm. because when and where are you learning more about it? Why would you? Um, A friend of mine, I can't remember. I was talking about, uh, I had an elk hunt. I went on a cow elk hunt in Colorado and I was telling my friend, you're like, oh, well, I got to get this license. And then I've got to make sure I've got my, my Colorado license. And I've got to get this. And, I gotta, you know, and she was just kind of like truly flabbergasted. Like she, she just bought <laughs> a, a license commitment. and you just went out and you shot whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted. And right. so it's not that it, people just genuinely do not know because why would you know any of that? Yeah. Um. So I wanted to have that environmentalist word in the title and I wanted to kind of connect a few things. It's got shotguns. So it's like, okay, guns, conservation, environmentalism, hunting. I wanted to try and smush that all together. Um, but it's still, you know, you got to, if you're someone who doesn't like hunting or doesn't know much about hunting, why in the world would you pick up this book that's like, I'm going to tell you why hunting's great. Right. You have to be um, willing to challenge yourself. You have to be willing to say, okay, yeah, I want to, I, I want to know what it is that this is saying yeah. and I'll still be right. Like I'll still know, like you have, yeah, you have yeah. to be willing to either come at it with an open mind or like, I'm going to read this and I still, I like, they, they know what they're going to, their conviction will be afterwards. And hopefully, hopefully they're, um, it's worn down a little bit, opens their mind up a little bit. I, I saw it on some shelves at Barnes and Noble, like next to um, some books about climate change and a book about uh, a book by Jane Goodall. And that just tickled me. I was just so delighted good, good to place, see man. that. Um, yeah. yeah, I was psyched about that. Um, yeah. I could not get and I, I haven't been able to get bookstores in New York City to give me the time of day. Really? Um, which could be them just, you know, thinking they're making a smart shelving choice like well who's gonna buy this in new york city right. um as much as i try to tell them like i know i live in brooklyn like yeah um this is a brooklyn story if you care about animals if you care about the environment it's a story for you but yeah you're um, like i mean how many uh, there's probably a handful of local authors in brooklyn so but yeah. but but it seems like there would be room to have a like, I mean, you could even have like a, a, a BHA, HOC, RMEF, like have a meetup of all the various, you know, hunting groups come to the, come for, come in for a little reading, you know, and, and, uh, and pick up some copies. What? Okay. So, you know, you, you were not a hunter. You, you got involved in conservation. You're in involved in taxidermy. Are you still with the Smithsonian? Is that where you're still working? So, no, I do. Um. I do tours of the habitat dioramas at the American Museum of Natural History. Okay. Um, Museum. Okay. And uh, that's just more of a fun side thing. Side thing. Um, yeah, because I just love it. I love being there and I love showing people the art and history of the museum and what is truly the birthplace of the modern conservation movement in America is not yeah. just New York City, but it's, it's New York City and it's the American Museum of Natural History um, yeah. it is the, the birthplace of so many parts of the uh, American model uh, of uh, conservation. Also, mm-hmm. just so many of our 
national parks and our first wildlife refuges and all of that like truly just came straight out of that museum so there's some really awesome conservation history there and yeah i have a background in taxidermy history so it's just kind of the perfect amazing. place who'd have thought what what do you see because as i understand when the founders of conservation i'll just say roosevelt at all we're, we're putting this model together. The debate, there was debate then about preservation, remove human participation from the landscape to preserve these animals and hope that they grow versus conservation, leverage human engagement and participation to fund habitat and at all, you know, and all that. Like there was the preservation, there were preservationists. There were what I would call the anti-human preservationists that didn't want us involved and didn't want hunting to happen um, because it was hunting. It was over, it was market hunting, over hunting that, that caused, you know, extirpation and potential extinction and whatnot. Is it, have you, exp like, have you dug into what happened back then and the debates then and how close are they to what we're having now? And, and is the difference just the fact that, every everybody with an with a internet connection can can weigh in it's like is that what makes today more muddy and difficult or is it just the same like people would go pick up the newspaper then and would sit at the bar and rant one way or the other um how, how similar or how different is it yeah i mean it is kind of it, it is pretty much the same i mean social yeah. media um the the ease of information has changed everything but yeah, same conversations. Um, I mean, you know, Teddy had feelings on both sides too. He wanted he wanted a little bit of both. Um, mm -hmm. He didn't mind preservation to a certain extent, um, but understood that people were going to be growing in number and in moving to different locations and spreading. And um, he knew that there was it was very important to have a connection to the outdoors and mm -hmm. you don't have that kind of, you have, you care less, the more you care about the outdoors, the more you are generally actively involved with them and vice, or vice versa. versa. The more actively involved, exactly. the more you care. Right. Exactly. It's, it's, it's very symbiotic. Sorry. There's a uh, fire truck. Um, yeah. But uh yeah, so he understood that interplay, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand uh, mm -hmm. today, or they haven't really thought about it in those terms, that, yeah, duck hunters are responsible for so much of our wetlands protections, restorations, Um the purchase of wetlands to protect them and restore them. And um, the, it's just the, the connection that most people don't know. And when they hear it, it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you look at it in sort of these really gross reductive terms, like, well, if you want to build ducks, you got to have ducks. Right. So it's like, well, yeah, yeah, kind of do. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so that works, but it's not a, it shouldn't be, if it, if it works, you, you know, what's, what's the problem? Right. Um, it would all be very nice if we can say, well, shouldn't it all just be nice? And like, well, I guess, but who's going to, someone's got to pay for that. Like, um, 
you yep. have to have interaction to, and it's not just financial, you know, the people who volunteer their time to go out and bring down uh, barbed wire fences, who yep. people build watering holes for a- animals in Africa or rams in the mountains or whatever um, to create that infrastructure, um, building wildlife crossing paths. So, you know, the interplay is easy to explain if you have the time, but that is what's tricky now is finding the time to sort of explain those things to people who already have it set in their head. Yeah. What hunting is, who hunters are, why they do it. Um, Yeah. I I think, and that's where it comes down to each and every one of us. Um, Long form, long form, media like podcasts i think is a great forum because if it but it requires somebody to to step into that and choose it um to 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 expose themselves to it um but right who's listening? i, who's I didn't grow up these? hunting who's like, listening to blood hunting. origins yeah but yeah listen to blood origins listen to, listen to the howlcast there's a lot of opportunities out there to expose you know for people to choose to become more educated and open their minds but that's a big they step for a lot that, of folks though. Yeah, yeah, they have exactly. to choose who's it. Who's picking they have to up that it. book? Who's listening to that podcast? It's already yeah. within the bubble for the most part. Yeah, they may they may already be there. Um, but I know because I I didn't start hunting until 2017. Um, even even my wife, like she, we'd been dating together for another, for like four years before I first went hunting, and she's like who are you? Like, I didn't like, this wasn't in the, this wasn't in the portfolio. Like when we first met, like, who are you? And where did this come from? I'm like, ah, it's kind of always been there under the surface, you know? Um, you know, the, the closest I was to honey as a kid was, you know, fly fishing, barbless flies and trying to, you know, go from a nine inch trout to a 12 inch trout, which would have been a phenomenal thing as a teen. Um, and I, I did walk in the woods with a rifle once and my dad was like, okay, check that box. <laughs> like that was it. Um, but I was 12 at the time. And so it spanned many, many years to actually, to where I went out and, and hunted, you know? And, um, and so even for my family, it was, who is this person and what are they doing? And so it's, it was, and then, and then the broader, like the social media, the, the folks that I know on Facebook, the folks I know on Instagram. And so I started sharing, you know, a lot of my trail cam pictures and people would be like, and people love pictures of animals. And so 90%, because it took four years to take my first big game animal, I had laid out to my personal network of people that would pay attention that I was working really hard and spending a lot of time in the woods and studying animals and finding animals, but not being successful. And kind of, it laid out so they, they knew, wow, this is not just drive out, you know, with a, with a six pack of beer and, you know, jump out and shoot something. They, they knew that. And so that story, as it developed, I think I, I got a lot of, uh, I got a lot of buy-in from, from non-hunters that, that would be willing to watch and see this. And, and then when I was successful, they were like, dude, that's amazing. That's awesome. Because they knew how much work had gone into it. They knew how much I'd, I'd committed to it. And so even though they themselves are not going to be hunters, um, they were along for the ride to build up to that. And, uh, and they respect it. Like, and they've, they've told me that, like, they've literally like said, Hey, like I'm a not, I don't hunt, 
but the way you've put this out here, like I see the commitment to the, the habitat, the commitment to the wildlife, the commitment to, you know, all the things that are good that come out of it. Um, but that's hard to build. Like you can't just, you can't just snap your finger and have that happen. Like it has to take, it takes time and it takes intention. And if we can all put that story out in a longer form over time, that's where I think we start to pick up eyes and ears yeah, and, and uh, hearts if, and minds. If you invite people to a wild game dinner at your, at your house, they will mm -hmm. say yes, excitedly. Feed them. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, a lot of people yeah. say feed them. So when you first decide, like, okay, you started studying it, became enamored with, you know, the the fact that, you know, hunting is a, is a key mechanism in conservation. And then you said, I'm going to go hunt. And then you did it. Was that, did it, did it, did it start from like, to be complete in my journey, I need to do this at least once, like almost like I'm out of, I'm out of duty and, and study. And then did it ever switch over into, this is just fun. Like I, I want to plan my next adventure. I want to plan my next thing. Or is it, is it more of duty intending to the garden? It started as duty for sure. And then the first time you do it, you're like, Oh, this is fun. Yeah. Um, immediately. Um, yeah. So then it's great. If, if that is the trajectory. Were you successful? Because... Was it fun because no, you were my... successful or was it just fun because it, you were, you were no. doing the thing? Yeah, I was just doing the thing. The fir my first hunt was for wild pigs in Texas okay. um, with a buddy. And, I, you know, trail cam pictures of more pigs than I've ever seen in my entire yeah. life in one place. Never saw uh, hide nerd <laughs> hair of one of them in real life. That's not um, the Texas but, narrative. I thought everybody I shot pigs from helicopters in Texas. I thought it was easy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> nope. Didn't see no one. helicopters. Nope. We didn't have a helicopter that day. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it, I was not successful. And there's a part of me, I write about this a little bit. Um, there was a part of me that was thankful that I wasn't successful because yeah. I was nervous about having that opportunity and having to make the decision whether or not to take the shot. And, uh, you know, of course the day before it's like my friend and I are just stuffing our faces with Texas baby back ribs. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, it's, it might be baby steps for someone who hasn't done it before, but it becomes so much easier to make those connections once you've sort of opened yourself to trying. And uh, so it was like, all right, you know, if I get in the blind and I see a pig, I don't have to pull the trigger. There's nothing making me pull the trigger. It's not a big deal. I don't have to. But then, of course, I think about all those delicious pork ribs I ate the day before. And I'm like, okay, maybe I can pull the trigger. Um and then you sort of go, so for me, it was a combination of two things. It was the food aspect mm -hmm. and that sort of responsibility to the land and where am I getting my food from environmentally mm -hmm. and uh, the conservation aspect of, well, where am I putting my money when I get food? And instead of paying a farmer to farm or instead of paying a instead of paying the Nestle corporation to make me some soybean patties, 
Uh, Is there a way I can pay mother nature to make my food? And then it's like, oh, right. People forage and uh, oh yeah, people hunt for food. And so it was just sort of the combination of the, the history of the conservation structure in America combined with my personal ethos around food and that all just kind of came together and you're like, okay, okay, fine. I, I hear you. I'll start hunting. Time to do and it. And Exactly. Um, I think part of the conversation that doesn't get, or it gets compartmentalized that will eventually need to be addressed somehow is guns because guns is, are a huge barrier for people. And when we do intro courses, it's a lot of uh, bow hunting and uh, uh, vertical bow and crossbow and sometimes it's just a like let's go shoot sporting clays that's how our gun, I, wait are guns a barrier because legally you can't just go pick one up the way you can pick up like a, a cast iron skillet or are guns a barrier because people have some some wiring that they own as an as a human as a person as an individual that becomes like oh i don't want to do that th- i don't want to touch it like yeah, a, it's both it's both okay. big time um, it is a barrier to entry uh, because people don't know how to do it or they're they're nervous about doing it for any number sure. of realistic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, or the fact that today, if you go up to someone and you say gun to someone who's a non-hunter or non-sport shooter, if you say gun, what are they going to think of first? It's a handgun or some uh, like military assault assault style rifle that they've heard about in the news for some terrible reason people don't think about like i hear gun i think of the woodstock break open shotgun my dad gave me when i was in like the sixth grade you know that's what i think of sure i have a very different relationship to guns than the people who only hear about guns in the news in yeah in yeah I wish they I wish they think about guns the same way they think about cast iron skillets and hammers. <laughs> Cuz there's a lot of people that don't know how to use a cast iron skillet and they screw up their food. <laughs> there's a lot of people yeah. that don't know how to use a hammer and they fuck up their, uh, yeah. they screw up sure. their their framing work. Um it's just a tool. It's just yeah, it is. it's sure. just it is. an inanimate object that you have to learn how to use correctly. Yeah. It is yeah. it is just a tool. Um but there <laughs> But is I some, hear you. <laughs> there is some violence involved uh sometimes yeah. with guns. But no, it's unfortunate. It makes me I'm trying to draw a parallel. So with hunting, um and what you just said about guns and, and all that. So if people only hear about guns, they don't know the culture, they don't know the people. It's almost the same conversation. You know, they don't they don't know the the diversity of people who have guns or whatever, right? But all they hear about guns is all the bad stuff that happens. They don't know the core, the major core of people who own guns and we're not violent people and we're not out there killing people and all it's always the minority. And I think about it with, with hunting, it involves killing. That's the difference. Like I was just thinking when you guys were talking, not every hunting is not for everybody, and it never has been and it never will be. And you know. Neither is math, but it's pretty ne- necessary <laughs> for for us to live in the in the in the uh, progressive you know in the in a progressing world, right? Or music. Not everybody's a musician, but man, it sure 
affects everybody you know they don't know how to play music but it's still a part of their lives and, and hunting just always has been and because simply at one point it was because that's how you ate meat because somebody hunted that right mm -hmm. and still and I, I think what you what you say is not everybody hunted if there was a family group yeah. or a call it a tribe or a clan or whatever whatever name is appropriate for the continent you're talking about um not everybody in that group hunted right. usually some did Com right. communities communities divvy up responsibilities yeah mm -hmm. And I, and I get it that people don't want to, the majority of people eat meat, but they don't want to see how that cow or pig or whatever died and how it got slaughtered or whatever. And I totally get that. Why would you want to see that? You know? So I always, I try to think of, you know, if I'm a, if I'm Joe public or if I'm an anti hunter, is it back to sort of what you guys were talking about before it might've been before you started the podcast, but, uh, is it the images, you know, is it because if they only see the kill shots, then I mean, it's got to be some of it. It's got to be some of it because it would be like, let's only show the the bolt going into a cow's head and dying and laying on the ground and, you know, quivering back and forth. Like, it'd be kind of maybe that'd be sort of a weird thing for people to see. If they saw that all the time, but are they seeing that? all? I, I don't know. Are they seeing that all the time? Are they purposefully going to YouTube or Instagram or turning on the outdoor channel or whatever and watching for the most part, kill shots. Now that has changed a little bit. There's a bit more storytelling involved, which I think is extremely important um, in, in the, in the process to not just show the, the kill shot, but um, I'm just trying to figure out what the problem is here. Cause it, it's essentially, save wolves and save uh coyotes probably a few other things in there too i'm trying to get wild food off the landscape like how do we not win that battle it's it's kind of right. crazy that like is this really that hard to win or are we just yeah, that, what are we doing wrong here i i'm telling you people get it if you have the time to to give them the whole story the problem right. is it is so easy to see someone in a grip and grin and you see nothing else um and i had I, I talk about that in my book i even have a, an illustration that i was really that i really pushed for which is on one page of the book there is a hunter um with you know with his deer and he's smiling for a picture like a like a grip and grin and then you turn the page and the whole spread is what you do not see in that picture yeah and that is the entirety of the funding structure the conservation aspect the lands that are uh the lands that are uh, become protected for habitat and let people go fishing or hiking on them lands that are there for people and wildlife the the all of the things that you do not see in the grip and grin photo because you you see that grip and grin and i don't have a problem with with grip and grins truly um because you know the other I, side of the page because i know the other you side you know of what the page. it represents you know yeah. what it represents. I want that page. I want that page to be a full page in the Wall Street Journal. 
or Time Magazine or right. Newsweek, where it's one side is the grip and grim, and the other side is the ecological economic life cycle that builds communities, funds this, you know, puts goes from 200 mountain lions in Colorado to 5,000 today over 60 years of big game hunting. Like that's to me, cause that's what we need. I, I mean, you know, and so <laughs> that yeah. is a hard, it's hard to get that into a mass publication. Yes. Yeah. It's but because again, Charles is going to write the why check. Would you see that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, but that's that's the initiative of of how that that is where how wants to be, how how and Honey is Human wants to be in a point where we either buy that page or we get it written like by scholars, blood origins. You know, there's people Sue, you, you know, Sue Brant, Robbie. Like we need to. That's the type of communication that needs to be in front of twenty million people. Um, yeah, I think so too. I, um, and people are interested in it, but like, yes, when are you confronted with those images or those ideas, um, yeah. those understandings of how conservation structures work? I can usually start a conversation by saying there are stable or increasing numbers of wildlife in areas that are protected for hunting in Africa mm -hmm. than there are areas that don't allow hunting. And that takes people a second to digest. And then they'll give you the latitude to be like, what, how, why, what? Mm -hmm. um, and if you can start with saying, hey, this works, let me show you proof that it works. Then they're a little bit more interested in hearing what you have to say. Mm -hmm because it is very results driven rather than and results on a grander scale than just like i got a deer this season right um i sent a hundred dollars to the department and i got a deer how do right. you think those yeah. people got to that point brant how did they how come when you tell them that why are they saying what how why and i'll ask a blunt question is it just because they've been lied to where they believe in a lie is it is that lie that powerful where it's like in every publication and in the mainstream media where this where this idea that is false is just put to them all the time like I don't know. why are why is that such a it's like god okay we're either on the side of truth or not and you know the the biologists here's one problem cpw biologists they can't come out and talk about mountain lion management and they can't give their opinions on it they can't like they're they're throttled and this is you know in most states it's like that and it's like here's the experts but we're leaving the decision making and where people gather their information to who's the best marketer which is crazy yeah. like yeah so sure how has this happened it's just that's what's really driving me nuts here don't people want to be on the side of truth and I mean, it's almost like, what are we up against? This is, it's just wild that it's, it's almost like this is perpetual lie. And that's really what it is we're fighting. And how do we break down that? How do we break that wall down? The, I, I think more so with, so 
when I think of something like that, that is a lie that is perpetuated is that this, this idea of like, okay, when I, my freezer has been pretty empty for the last couple of years, I've been busy, but, um, though I get, um, I get my beef from a, uh, a little farm up the Hudson. It's just a, like a small, uh, regenerative, uh, cattle ranch run by a, just like a couple guys and I get my beef from there. And it, like in no universe is some soybean patty that was grown on a monocrop farm that had to take so many acres of what was once usable land and turn it into soil dead monoculture farming it's owned by the nestle corporation it's cut like in no universe is that vegan plant-based soy patty better for the environment than a steak from one of my uh one of the cattle that lived on the regenerative farm just up the hudson from me yeah i mean that soy is... patty is grown out of petrochemicals <laughs> Basically. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's yeah. a product I mean, of petrochemicals. Sure. And you could go to <laughs> um, I, a story I tell in the book is how I, I used to work for REI and Eastern Mountain Sports. And I was always pushing wool products because I'm, I'm a wool fanatic. And people would say to me, oh, I don't want to buy anything that's animal derived. And I, I truly had to be like, you would rather buy this plastic shirt that came from an oil refinery than this sheep's haircut who lives in these vast open mountains of New Zealand. Like that's where, and eventually I had to start carrying around a piece of paper. I printed out, I tell the story in the book and I have, I have the pictures, uh, a piece of paper and the top image on the piece of paper was a petrochemical factory. And below it was a picture of a, a sheep station in mm -hmm. the uh, New Zealand, like Southern Alps of New Zealand. Where, where do you want your <laughs> clothes to come like, from? A or B? Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's like, here yeah. are just some fluffy sheep walking around, enjoying their day. You know, they're going to get a haircut in the spring. That's it. Um, and then, or he was a petrochemical factory making all of your synthetic fill jackets and, you know, what have you. And so it's just people aren't putting those, those are sort of lies that I feel like are actively being spread. When it comes to hunting, the things I see is more trophy hunting, the word of trophy. That would be where I, I see the most sort of, um, the most misinformation there and people having a true misunderstanding of where the word trophy comes from what the word trophy means what big game hunting in africa or anywhere else means and what that's a part of and the economics of that system that would be i think the biggest one in terms of your average american hunter who's just going out and hunt you know elk deer whatever uh grouse in the wood duck hunting i think that's more of a most people don't care they find it kind of distasteful but if you can explain it to them then they're like oh okay 
I, I don't see the vehement because you'll hear that even from hunters that are like, well, you know, hunting is fine, but those trophy hunters are Africa and they'll even draw a hard line. Yeah. So, well, and that, and that was drawn around Africa. And I, I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, are you against trophy hunting in the African continent, the way it was described, basically it's poaching. Like it's the whole fly in, shoot an animal, cut off the hardware and then leave the animal to rot. That's what, that's where trophy hunting was. That's where negativity around trophy hunting was. That seed was planted around that fomented, visual. Yeah. That's where it was planted around that visual. But now through intentional massaging of the language and, and messaging, that word is being attached to elk hunting. It's being attached to me because I took a picture of my forkhorn, uh, you know, up in the mountains. Like, oh, like, am I a trophy hunter now? Like, because I, I was so proud of this moment where the, the picture that you described, the, the person holding the, the grip and grim. HSUS has literally said, so one of their top spokespersons here in California with the bear hunt issue, if you take a picture of the animal, it is now a trophy hunt. Like all other values are 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 white are washed away, and now it's a trophy hunt. So they've taken that 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 elephant tusk poaching incident from sixty years ago, and now it's just everything. And they're actually using it to affect language, statutory language in Colorado. That's where we're. That's where we are decades behind on messaging and we need to reclaim i think we need to not hide from that word we need to reclaim that word yeah it's it's you know the trophy hunter puts in the most resources passes on them there's the most selective they pass on animals they're not indiscriminate they're probably eating tags so they're buying tags funding conservation skipping animals and then they're taking you know in general if they're really doing it as a trophy hunter they're taking the most resource heavy, least productive males off the landscape. Um, yep. I, I spell all of that out in the book and go through the word trophy and its yeah. origins and how it's been bastardized. Um, the, I would love to see competing bills that say you're not allowed to take pictures of your food. You're not allowed to take pictures of <laughs> your, you your child wearing clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, no, if you're wearing clothes, you're, you know, you're supporting whatever brand that is. And we know that fast fashion is really detrimental to the environment and you're supporting that industry. Yeah. And so we can't have anything that's promotional of the, you know, you could, you could do that. Um, for, like, it, but the idea that you couldn't take a photo, like that you can't memorialize um, something like that. Then it's like, you're not allowed to take a photo when you go hiking. Um, well, we just need to extend the intellect. You know. We need to extend intellectually and logically extend that rhetoric and that thought process to everything else, because then it looks like complete bullshit. It's like, well, that's insane. Yeah, exactly. It's like it is exactly. insane. You're right. It that's is it. completely insane, and it is what yeah. you're doing, what they're doing to, you know. And so I think I think it's key that we, you know, and and they'll they'll say. Only 3% of Washingtonians participate in this. It's like, well, okay, what other things can we find that only 3% of Washingtonians do? Can we outlaw that? I, I oh, oh, like, yeah. like to me, it's like, you see. are the new bigot. Yeah. You are the new, you are exactly. the new bigot. Yeah. If this is scientifically, economically, ecologically sustainable, you just don't like it. Yeah. And you want to outlaw it. 
you are now stepping into some serious social bias territory that you claim to be so like educated on and and i i i I will be the first to call them out on that i I think it would be very easy to um go after um skiing and mountain biking in colorado um skiing and mountain biking far more detrimental to elk and wild sheep than hunting um a hunter's whole purpose is to move in and out of a landscape undetected um Mm -hmm. and not not mess with it um the industry of skiing in colorado um and then coupled with mountain biking so now you are stripping an entire mountain range uh Mm -hmm. of its usefulness to wild animals because they can't be there in the winter and now they can't be there in the summer because that's being used by mountain bikers um you if the number one threat to wildlife worldwide is habitat loss and habitat conversion well ski oh the skiing industry we, we should just get rid of all that get rid of it let's reforest all those but it's the winter range so it doesn't matter okay now the mountain biking that's the summer range uh, it's highly yeah. disruptive. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. No, we need the winter. The winter range is the most important for the elk. They need yeah. that the most. The yeah. most vulnerable time. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's... You're not saying you're going to do that, but perfect example is Vale Resorts. Um, <laughs> is uh, they, They've attempted to build staff housing in the winter range of the Gore Range Bighorn Sheep, which is a very small... Their winter range is very small. And they were like, we're just going to build right in it right in their winter range and that has been that's been overturned but a long battle but they were purposefully Vale resorts was purposely just saying no nope, we're gonna build here doesn't matter that that's their winter range doesn't matter that they might not survive um that's the things i like to go after but yeah not skiing mm-hmm. as a whole i love skiing sure i i, lo- <laughs> but I, I get your point too. no I, I get but, your point yeah but the 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 there's no such thing as non-consumptive yeah. outdoor recreation. Right, right, right. Right. A lot of it comes down to when when Mike said, you know, 2% or 3% in, in Washington, the um, what's being said by the anti-hunting organizations is that this species is on the decline or this species is in trouble. And they have their own... the. What I'm seeing is they have their own quote unquote scientists, biologists who are, I would say, agenda driven with with their own organizations and are completely at odds with departments, you know, with a state's department's biologists. So they'll give one presentation. The department will give a presentation like here's the state of mountain lions in this in this state. We don't see there's any worries whatsoever but then they'll have their own scientists from i don't know mountainlion.org or something i don't know and so it's like science against science now and it's just becoming this what the heck is going on you know and and when i say the lie that i brought before i mean the there's an industry behind this that makes money off of the emotions yes and and that's what I mean, the lie. I don't mean the everyday person out there who really doesn't sure. know any better. They're just being fed that lie, and that's all they've been fed. So that's their only perspective. But then you tell them a different story about, hey, here's what's really going on in Africa. And they're going, wait, what? Never heard that before. Yeah. It's just crazy. Like, okay, you've never heard that before. So then that tells me they need to hear that way more and way more and way more. There needs yeah. to be a multi million dollar campaign to tell people that 
way more and way more and way more because we're either right or we're wrong. And it seems like we have so much right on our side, but we're afraid to, it's almost like we're afraid to use it to put it out. Well, there. it's, it's unfortunate because you could just follow their same tactics. Okay. Get billboards, get, you know, whatever it is they're doing, you just do the same thing. But I, I and I, we might be at that place where stuff like that needs to be done. It's just so unfortunate because all of our time and efforts used to be into actionable boots on the ground conservation efforts, right. habitat restoration, uh, purchasing of land for migration corridors, uh, really cool, actionable conservation efforts. And now yeah. it's like, Oh, are you telling me I have to stu- like it it really does feel like arguing with a flat earther. Like <laughs> I like I shouldn't have to that shouldn't be on my plate. I'm a real scientist. Right. And you want me to argue with this lunatic over pseudoscience, but they're getting in front of more people. Yeah. Um and it's, they're in the arena. It, that's they're the in the arena stuff. and yeah. they're they're talking to legislative bodies and they're yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's where you're right. Hunters have been like, ah, I don't want to get involved in politics. It's like, eh, neither do any of us. Like, we don't. But if decisions are being made there, you know, California's lost more hunting rights through the legislature than through the commission. Like, we we have to know how to play the game and and do what do the work. It's not playing the game. We need to know how to do the work where those decisions and uh, messaging is going down. It's the politics game. You you have to play the politics game now, which sucks because it used to be within the realm of science. And like, yeah, if you were a state organization, you listened to your state's biologists and ecologists because that is their entire job is to know what's up in your state and give you the recommendations of how local wildlife can be made to thrive and keep uh, species at stable or increasing um, population levels. So the fact that people are not listening to anyone but their own state, like no one gets into state biology because they hate animals and they've got a nefarious plan to like, it's just so crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of your book because I listened to it and you you narrated it and I and I love your uh, the characters you your different voices you have in the book and I think I think I heard that voice before while listening to your yeah. book which was awesome by the way it was like an awesome long story I love storytelling and you were just telling a bunch of stories and interesting stories I loved I loved your book thank you. Brant, Brant, what's what's the punchline? What's your punchline for like where you want to see hunting, conservation, the non-hunter? Like where 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 are we going if you can pull us there in the next two to five years? Oh, it is more positive media attention, which sucks. <laughs> like I don't want that to be the the aim, but the thing is, the community is already doing the stuff it needs to do um, because they are already interested in habitat um, and wildlife populations. That already is what's happening. Now it is that we have to show that off and we have Mm -hmm. to 
um, educate a public that uh, it shouldn't matter whether they know it or not, but now it does matter that they know it. And so we have to be these sort of um, unwilling educators. And I think the people who are making that their business are doing a good job, but it is really hard to find those those venues. I end up talking a lot in the hunting space, um, but that's not my aim. I'm really trying to get to more podcasts that have nothing to do with hunting and mm. be in those types of spaces is where we all need to really be putting our efforts because otherwise it just becomes this sort of circle jerk within the bubble of us yeah. grumbling about Colorado here and California there just to each other. Um, and that's the hardest part is getting everything that we know and all the facts that we have outside of our bubble. And that does mean that people have to take it upon themselves to a certain extent to bring that to people outside their circle. And it's not easy these days. And it's a whole new level of like, like, and subscribe. Like now you're making yeah. people do work and they hate doing that. <laughs> so it's an uphill battle for sure. If but every hunter impossible. could have a hundred people, like if every hunter had a, a network, if the hundred people that are closest to every hunter, knew that they hunted and knew that their value set and the effort and not to recruit them, not for the R3, but for the relatability part of it. I think that would go a long ways, especially in like the top 25, you know, urban metros where it's assumed that people don't hunt, where it's assumed that people don't get out on the landscape enough. Like that would, I think that would be, um, that would be a big lift but it would be individuals sharing with their coworkers, you know, sharing with their coworkers, sharing with their neighbors, sharing with their family, extended, et cetera, that, that this is what they do and this is what they value and this is why it works. That's a very relatable story. Like, you know, you just, you just have to know someone like, it's not that scary. Just right. Get to know someone. Yeah. 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 Right on. So you've got SCI coming up. What's uh, get a, are you are you in a booth? Or are you a, are you trolling, no, I, walking around, man, uh, meeting yeah. people, and networking? What's going on there? Uh, yeah, I if I had the money to blow on a booth, sure that'd be nice. But um, it's more it's you know it's kind of like the conventions are like camp where you're meeting up with your little camp buddies and yeah. saying hello to people. And I've got some meetings with folks and. Um, I can only be there the last two days, unfortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's just kind of a camp weekend, making connections, meeting up with people who I haven't seen in a year. Um, I think I'm going to be talking with uh, Cable Smith from Lone Star Outdoor Show. Um, mm. And um, uh, yeah, meeting with some other people. So it'll just be kind of a fun fun weekend i'm in the market for some oh man if people have suggestions i am in the market for some high quality in-ear protection and there are just like there's like five companies out there they're all costing me like two thousand five hundred bucks for good and i don't know what to choose and so if anyone has recommendations of high quality in-ear protection where i can actually hear my buddies um 
and protect my ears. I am I am all ears. You want them in ear, not over ear. Yeah, I mean, I've, I wear plugs and muffs if I'm going um, shooting, you know, like uh, sporting play shooting and stuff like that. But if I'm like duck hunting or something, I'm wearing, usually I'm wearing just um, foam plugs and uh, yeah, foam plugs, which I think still offer the highest noise reduction rating at like 33 or something. But yeah, yeah I'd like to be able to protect my ears and those Howard Lates, the Howard late uh, over the ear are really nice. So they, they cut out all sound up to a certain decibel level. So you're not blasting your ears out, but you can hear your friends. There's like a little dial and you can basically turn up the conversation. You but can you hear your friends just deer, deer hunting. Like I, I want to no. learn something where, you know, that's the thing. It's like, even if you just fire <clears throat> one shot, if I'm deer hunting be... now, yeah. if well, I'm deer I'm hunting, I just protection. have something like ready yeah, yeah, to yeah. put in and then, it'll go in and those are just little plugs or whatever. Um, I do have, I, a I, sig, do that too. Yeah. I have some Sig Sauer um, in ear and they are, they're amplified and noise reducing. Um, I do have those. Those are in ear. Those are kind of like AirPods. Uh, yeah. I, I don't fire a shot with Walker's that. Game My dad ear. has tinnitus. I think Walker's game ear has, a, those are pretty expensive. Those are, I think I've heard good things about them. Those are in ear. Well, that's what I'm shopping for at SCA. If um, if Charles and my experience with Sheep Show and uh, Shot Show is any indicator, I think you'll find at SCI that there is a there's a big appetite for uh, people to for all of us to become better informed about how to communicate outside the hunting community. I think that's I think the awareness that that is a critical function that we need to develop is key and i think you're i think you are in a very good position to you know to be a part of that and so i i think you'll find that the question the is is like we need to start investing in resources when i mean that it's not just it, it is money but it's also time and focus and, and intention and programs um, it's great to teach the ranching community, you know, the kids that are in the ranching community that all have 4-H and have FFA and have archery club. It's great to teach them about conservation. Better is like, how do we, how do we, you know, and so we fund that. Well, we need to fund teaching archery and, and, and hunting and conservation to folks that are hundreds of miles away and generations of family time away from that, that activity. And that's going to be a little bit of a harder sell, but I think we're getting there. I think we're really getting to the point where we know that we need to we need to broaden our base of communication, who we're talking to. Um, and I say I, I think I think you'll find that, and I hope that that I hope you do because I think you're going to be a, a, an important stakeholder or contributor to that communications development. I think it can be tricky between like, I, I, I hope that's true that the organizations want to work together. I think a lot of times people get tripped up on, you know, this organization wants this and they want that. And they're oh, they it. do. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, but I, I'm hoping that there is some level of, okay, let's bicker about that later. Right now we have issue number one and we all need to be, so I would love to see some kind of greater, a coalition of people joining uh, forces for both time, effort, finances to say, 
you know, what is this? Are we putting out a documentary? Can we get something on HBO? Can we do like, is there more, uh, you know, Blood Origins makes good documentaries. I want them to be seen by people, you know? Yeah. Um, I wrote this book for non-hunters, but non-hunters have got to pick it up. Um, the, the media attention, um, the media attention is is huge and if we have more people working towards that common goal it'll be a lot easier to achieve i think you absolutely need to have different faces in front of people um to do those marketing sort of pitches and i think if people are are smart enough to get that it's become a political game now unfortunately that you've got to play that play that game to win it because of the, all the information is there that's what Look. That's what I like about it is I can Look, say I have this great information and you're willing to listen to me just because I live in a city or some other stuff. You know, you're listening to me, not someone else. And the anti-hunters intentionally fact. use a caricature of the hunter. Yes. They use a caricature of the hunter that is not representative of the hunting community. Knowing that it will con- trigger a, a, an emotion or a feeling or a you know psychological reaction in a lot of the folks that they're marketing that to, it is absolutely appropriate that we don't have to manufacture a caricature. We can go into the hunting community and find people from numerous nations right here in California, from all over the world that hunt all colors of skin all backgrounds all political backgrounds like we don't have to manufacture that no it is like they're they're here of course and so like it's and so i think it's important because there's like oh you know is it you know is it are we gonna get flack for intentionally choosing this that or the other it's like they're here like they're representative like like the first dude that spoke at at the washington you know senate Mm -hmm. hearing on the right to hunt i'm like I love you, man. Like, this is fantastic. Like, because it's just, it's, it is truly representative of the community for us to put more than the caricature that the anti hunters would have and seek out and, and want to present. So I'm, you know, we're, we're, we're there. Like you, you, you're preaching the choir on that one. So absolutely. I agree with you. I would love to see, um, I've been trying to, as much as I'm trying to promote my own book, I'm also trying to promote Sue, Sue Tidwell's book, um, Cries of the Savannah. Cries of the Savannah, yeah. Um, because she's also mostly talking to a non hunter crowd, but her story is specifically about Africa. And, and within that, she talks about Western hunting, um, yeah. as well. But yeah, it's having, having space for people to tell those stories, um, is I think you will get a there are there are people who are more interested in listening to those than it might seem like, especially when we're just following the anti-hunting crowd and the messaging mm-hmm. they're putting off to people. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I've never had a neg- negative experience at like a learn about hunting pipe night, a like first timers archery class. Um, and you know, people are are interested they like it yeah. they like the idea of being connected to the land and their food and um you know there's a reason we saw an uptick during the pandemic um i think what's what's 
the barrier is a barrier to edu- to the education, meeting people, feeling comfortable with the people they're meeting, being in a a, a third space that um, people don't feel confronted in. You know, maybe it's not a rotten gun club. You know, it's just a bar or something like that. But people are very interested in the conversation. I will I will happily fly to Colorado and do a you know a lecture with slides and stuff and at like a at a bar whatever um, yeah just just talking to people uh is is because where else are they coming into contact with that media otherwise you have to physically go to the spaces where they already are it's not like a pint night at a climbing gym yeah exactly with with lion share lion lion's heart in the background <laughs> we're rambling now um yeah, let's wrap it up brant where do we find your book what's it called where do we find it uh the book is called the shotgun conservationist why environmentalists should love hunting my website is immortalanimals.com and you can find links to the book or some podcasts. I need to update that. Um, but uh, and if you're in New York City, I'll give you a tour of the American Museum of Natural History if you like. Get in contact with me. Um, I'm I travel for seminars and lectures. I teach beginner taxidermy. That's really fun. I once taught a one hour taxidermy a couple times a one hour taxidermy class at google and i'm like guys this is a class that normally i set aside six to eight hours for this class and you have (laughs) one hour to do it who's ready and of course everyone's just like okay let's do it yeah they're um so weird crowds they're into it like if you give them if you give them the the space they will they will follow you to weird places like a one hour taxidermy lesson that's um, awesome. Shotgun yeah. conservationist, immortalanimals.com. Yep. Love it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That, absolutely. Oh, and it's uh, stuff in my apartment on Instagram. Like we see behind you. Yeah, exactly. A lot <laughs> of weird stuff. My own mini museum. Uh, thank you guys. <laughs> thank you for your time. And that's a wrap. Brant McDuff, thank you so much again. It was great to see you at Hunt Expo. Very much enjoyed this conversation, and we know we'll have many more. Uh, love the fact that you are a supporter and an advocate and a vocal proponent for hunting as the means to successful conservation. Everybody, go check out Brant's work at immortalanimals.com. You can find him on Instagram at Stuff in My Apartment. And you can listen to, download, or purchase and read his book, The Shotgun Conservationist, at all of your favorite literary retailers. Thanks for listening, everybody. Go to howforwildlife.org, become a member of How for Wildlife, and take action to support hunting and hunting rights in North.